The New York Times and Washington Post have called Fiona Davis's work intricate, unpredictable, and stunning. All five of her best-selling historical fiction novels take place in storied New York landmarks like the Barbizon Hotel and Grand Central Station. Each wrestles with social conflicts that crisscross the lives of women living in different eras. In August 2020, Good Morning America named Fiona's latest novel, The Lions of Fifth Avenue, Book Club Pick of the Month. But what readers love most about Fiona's work is her sweeping determination to shed light on strong women finding their place in the world and complicated by family secrets and legacies of untold truths. Fiona shares her writing process, what inspires her, and the page-turning secrets of her success. This is her story. Welcome to Sippin' On Stories, where we take you into the lives of diverse and unique change makers who turn anxiety, fear, and passion into powerful recipes for success. Good stories build insightful connections, but great stories... Now, that's something special. Today's story is one of those stories. Hi, my name is Rose McInerney, and welcome back to Sipping on Stories. Today, we're sipping on the stories of celebrated author Fiona Davis. Back in 2015, Fiona was just getting started as a writer with her debut novel, The Dollhouse. When it hit the shelves, there was no turning back for this former actress turned journalist turned best-selling author. The next five years were a steady stream of successful books as Fiona takes readers into New York historic buildings. What followed for Fiona was The Address, The Masterpiece, Chelsea Girls, and today's discussion, which revolves around her latest best-selling novel, The Lions of Fifth Avenue. So adjust your volume and get ready to meet one of the most personal and creative storytellers I've ever met. Her works are nothing short of addictive. I'm sipping on a nice petal sparkling beverage with peach marigold flavor, and this is not an ad, but I am hoping that you are grabbing something to sip on and you're going to kick back with me as we invite Fiona into our sipping lounge. Please do not forget to hit that subscribe button at the end of the podcast, and if you like, even drop me a line. You can visit our Sipping on Stories website, where we'll be giving a copy of Fiona's book away, and you can also read more about Fiona's bio and see some links to her own website. Welcome, Fiona. Thank you for having me. Ah, you're so welcome. It's such a pleasure. I am so excited to talk about all things New York today. It's one of my favorite places, and I know that's your home, isn't it? Yeah, it has been for over 30 years now. Wow. Okay, so before we start sipping and talking New York and books, I'm sipping on a little bit of a peach marigold basil sparkling beverage, and I think you brought something today as well. Water near me, but I would have a mango peach green tea. Oh, I love all things peach, so maybe that'll make us feel like the spring is coming. (laughs) Well, there's so many places to start, but I'm just going to start by talking about, of course, your magnificent success story. This is book number five, five books in five years, all truly spectacular and best-selling New York Times books. Did you ever imagine, Fiona? No, no. I, I thought writing books was for other people. I couldn't imagine writing a book myself. Yeah. 
Unbelievable. Well, let's start with this last one, the Lions of Fifth Avenue. You were, of course, celebrated at the beginning of August when the book debuted for Good Morning America. They said, wow, we love your book, Fiona. And then you had a whole day. They spent a day celebrating it, didn't they? Yeah, they actually spent two days. So the first of August, or right when the book came out, um, they announced it that that was the, the book of the month for their book club, which was really wonderful because it was the same day the book came out. So it was all very exciting. And, and they told you, they told me about a month before. So I knew it was happening, but I wasn't allowed to tell a soul. And so, yeah, that one, they kind of did a little bit about it and, and you know, showed the cover. And then two weeks after that, I did a, about an hour long interview with Deborah Roberts. We talked all about the book and she asked some wonderful questions and surprised a librarian by, you know, who, who had read the book and loved it. And, and then they kind of cut that down into a five minute piece that ran mid, mid August. And that after that, it was just crazy. Honestly, I feel like you've been all over the news everywhere. And I'm wondering, I mean, I've read your other books. What is it about this? Is it just the reach of Good Morning America? Or is there something special about it being the New York Public Library? I think that what you, I think it's a combination. Um, definitely, you know, book lovers love libraries. Stories about libraries or, or bookstores or booksellers catch people's imagination. And I think it yeah. was a combination of just being the right book at the right time. Sure. Actually, that's a really good point too, just the timing of everything. I think that for everyone, the New York Public Library is just such a centered, I mean, those two lions out front, they sort of say it all, don't they? Patience and fortitude, yeah. Patience and fortitude. And I have to say, too, I learned so much about the history of New York and the way that you wove that into the story. But again, before we get to that, I want to know what it's like to be Fiona Davis, because you and I met a few years ago, and I was just enthralled with your story arc. You were really just getting out there. I know you were visiting a lot of libraries and doing a lot of presentations. Was that grassroots for you? Was that how it you really got into getting your book out there? Yeah. So, so my first book, The Dollhouse, came out, I think, six years ago now. And, um, you know, you're a debut author. No one knows you. So I would go around to bookstores in the area with the galley, which is kind of the early copy, drop it off and introduce myself and say I was a local author. And, you know, and, and they were all so responsive because it, it was set at the Barbizon Hotel for Women. And I remember the bookstore in New Canaan, the woman who I handed it to had lived at the Barbizon Hotel for Women. And so there was kind of an instant connection. And, um, and then after the book came out, libraries started asking me to come and do book talks. And I remember the first at Westport Library, and I was just yeah. terrified, you know, it was just absolutely terrified. And, um, and a lot of people showed up, which shocked me. And the response was lovely. And so ever since that, it's just built a readership. Because all the books are set in landmark New York City buildings, people know that they'll learn about the history of the building and kind of what went on in it. Each story is completely different. So you don't yes. have to read them in any order and they're all in different time right. periods. So you kind of know what you're getting, but you're still very mm -hmm. surprised. Yes, most definitely. When I looked at the book reviews for this, I saw, you know, it's historical fiction, but it's also a suspense. It's a page turner, isn't it? Is that something that you set, well, I'm sure it is, but you set out purposefully blending this, this mix of the two? 
Yeah, that's what I love. I love historical fiction, two time periods, with kind of an element of mystery that drives the story forward. And so for each book, that's, and I didn't realize how ambitious that was when I wrote the first book. So hard, just making everything wrap up and surprise. But it's very fulfilling. It, it's very challenging. But once I've figured it out, it's so much fun to have accomplished it and get it out in the world. I'm really writing the books I love, which which move. So it, the fact that it's a page turner, I think is, is great. Many people don't realize that writers have to do the marketing. You have to walk the book yourself to stores and get out there and be willing to do the presentations and talk to people. Yeah, and it's tricky because a lot of writers are introverts. It's, you know, it's a very solitary profession. You're researching, writing away. You need a lot of downtime that's quiet so that the plot and the characters can come to you. And so it, it's tricky because a lot of personalities aren't as quite as open to kind of standing in front of people and chatting away. I, I'm lucky in that because I trained as an actress, I knew how to do that. It was uncomfortable. I'm fine if there were lines that I was doing a play or something, but actually talk about something so personal and, and from the heart, that's how you connect with readers. Everybody has their own story that resonates in some way with your, with your story. If anything, that's the most wonderful thing of going out and doing author talks is hearing people come up to me and say, you know, I felt this way as well and this really connected with me. That's wonderful. What a story arc too and I'm sure as you grew your audience and the books continued to come and and you published each year that audience it sounds like the audience was kind of an integral part maybe of your story arc or your path in writing perhaps. Yeah definitely. Just the support from readers and librarians just made me realize, okay, I'm, I'm headed in the right direction. I'm doing what I should be doing. You know, to go back multiple times to libraries or bookstores and do presentations and reaction to the new book, just so much fun. It's, it, it's a community. And on top of the, you know, the, the readers, there's also other authors who I've gotten to know who support each other. So that if someone has a book coming out, you make sure you help them this wonderful world that I had no idea existed five, six years ago. Well, and it certainly makes it a lot less scary, doesn't it? And five books, five years later, are you currently working on something now, I'm assuming? Yeah, I am. I'm working on a book that's set at the Frick Collection, which is the beautiful Gilded Age mansion on Fifth Avenue that was a home and then a museum. And um, that should be out later this year or early next that's fantastic. I love the Frick. It's got a little bit of everything in terms of the art collection. And there's a great family story, I think, maybe there too. Oh, you bet. I can't wait. Okay, so you are a New Yorker. I did a little bit of research to uh, learn, and I, I did know that you have some stage background there. But before we get into a little bit about maybe your parents and some of the influences, do you have a Canadian connection in there? Yeah, I was born in Canada, near near Toronto. We moved when I was three, though, moved to the States, so I, I, I don't have a huge connection with it or, mm -hmm. or any memories. My parents are both English, so there's I've always been uh, that in-between stage of not quite American, not quite yes. Canadian, not quite English. I think in, it makes you want to search out identities, and, and writing a book is a great way to do that. Yes, absolutely. So you grew up in New York. You landed in New York, and your parents raised you in New, in New York? No, no, no. Um, it, I didn't ah. come to New York until after college. So, so we lived in New Jersey and Utah. Now they're in Texas. We moved around a lot. Oh. And, and again, I think that kind of instability made me 
become a voracious reader because that yes. was the one thing that was could be constant. Um, and also made me understand that there are different places and very different people with very different personalities and, and kind of wanting to capture that on the page. Okay, so when New York? Sir, I went to William & Mary and then came to New York right after that and worked as an actress for about 10 years doing okay. Broadway and off-Broadway and um, regional theater. It was, it was a lot of fun. With us. My best friends are those friends from that theater. And why the stage? Um, you know, who knows? You know how you just kind of fall into things in your 20s, True. at least back then. It was just, well, I'll audition for an acting school in New York and see if I get in. And I got okay. in, and so I did that. And then worked okay. with a the theater company. And, and it was just a, a fun, creative mm-hmm. collaboration all the time, which right. I really enjoyed. Um, but as I got a little older into my late 20s, early 30s, I just found that some of my friends who were women were not working as much. My male friends were working more and more as they aged into very cool character roles. And mm-hmm. I just thought, well, that's not fair, and that's yeah. not fun. And so that's when I applied to Columbia Journalism School and okay. went there for a master's. I would think, too, having been on stage, there's something about what informs your dialogue and your ability to write, too. So are there things you look back on or experiences maybe sometimes when you're struggling or you're thinking about set up you know i i and when there was theater i would go to the theater all the time and there's something yes. about hearing dialogue that's really good and and the the restrictions that a playwright has in terms of not being able to describe the room or it it's all it is is dialogue and because of that dialogue is character and, and i think that definitely helped me in terms of writing dialogue in the book and also stage direction of, of having a scene that feels dynamic because people are doing things that reflect what they're feeling and being able to, to sneak that into scenes that I'm writing. Yeah. I think both those things helped. Well, and I think that's the magic. You know, when I read your books, they're so immersive, you know, and even the opening, I was tempted at the beginning of this to read your opening. Your opening is really beautiful. And I feel like, you know, you really consider how am I going to start the book? Those first sentences are pivotal. And so I can't help but think that your stage presence and your experience in knowing how to move what creates a great scene or an opening scene in your book is really there. It starts in 1913, and the opening sentence is, she had to tell Jack. So of course, right away, we want to know what does she have to tell him? Who is she and who's Jack? He wouldn't be pleased. You know now you're setting up that arc and then going into this beautiful scene where it's Laura Lyons returning from running errands, turning over in her head the various reactions her husband might have to her news. And I, and I won't go on, but it's really a captivating scene with a beggar at the front, a woman. And the way that you do the slow reveal and what I see are sort of double meanings in things, money or food, and all kinds of, of beautiful, very poignant scene setters. How many times have you frequented that library outside of even the writing? So funny is I remember my, one of my earliest times going there was when we were doing a show that was set in the 1940s and a friend and I who were in the show were told that we would do the costumes. Uh-oh. <laughs> no experience. And it, it yes. was about going to thrift stores and finding things like the 1940s. But we didn't have any reference point and back then there was no internet. So we went to the picture collection, which was this huge room at the New York Public Library where it was just pictures. And you would kind of submit your request and get 
pictures of 1940s clothes wow. and ads and that kind of thing. And so that's where we that's where we went. I love this. And little did you know you'd be writing a bestseller about it. Okay, so you went on to journalism. Why the switch to journalism? What was what was in that? Yeah, you know, I, again, I felt like with the acting, I just didn't have as much control over my future as I wanted. And you know, I thought, you know, you know, journalism. So I to Columbia Journalism School. It was the only one I applied to. And I got in, I thought, oh, okay, you know, that seems to be the way to go. Again, it's so random. And it was really, you know, I, I recommend changing your your career every 10 years or so. Because I think there's something to it that mm-hmm. kind of shakes things up and you you eventually lead to where you find something that's really fulfilling, which is what happened to me where I did about fitness and then found this story idea for the first book that became the first book. It just... It would have taken all those steps to get there. I couldn't have mm-hmm. that in my 20s because I didn't have anything to say. I okay. needed to live life and make mistakes and change, shake things up in order to get to that point. Yeah, that's very insightful, I think. You have to live. You have to have lived a little bit, made some mistakes. And then I think that's super advice to anyone listening to be willing to pivot and to be open to be willing to pivot because so many of us are not. It's especially if it's at a a time like now where people are nervous. We don't have all of the sort of sense of security that we might have have had now that it's a different setting. And how about your parents? Were they all gung-ho throughout this whole process? Were they just cheering you on? Or was there a little bit of like, oh, I don't know, maybe not something so artsy, Fiona? Yeah, you know, they were always very supportive. They they comments that I would figure things out. You know, they... They never felt the need to tell me what to do or give yeah. me advice. I think I was pretty headstrong, too. I, my family are very scientific, so engineers. And so, you know, I think part of it was just not knowing quite what to do with me. And, and I was pretty <laughs> determined to do what I felt was right at the time. And, you know, as long as I took care of myself and supported myself, which is what I did, um, and then it was easier to show up and just support. Rents were lower, the standard of food. It was just easier yeah. to, to do everything that you wanted to do and meet other artists who were trying to figure things out as well. And and so, yeah, they were, they were, and they've, they've been so delighted, you know, I did on Broadway, they were just thrilled to death. And, and each book, they're, they're quite happy about it. They're, it's a very right. English thing, I think, of being supportive but not controlling, which is a really good way to raise kids. That is great. I think that this is also a silver time now where we look at those of us that are parents. How are we raising our kids? How much time are we spending with them? Are we over-parenting and cheering and giving trophies? You know, too many of all that kind of stuff. So I agree with you. I think that is, those are great parents. So you sit down, you're out on an assignment, and then you discover this Barbizan Hotel on the assignment. And then you decide it's going to be a book. Was it literally like that? Well, I, I, I had seen an apartment at the Barbizon Hotel for Women after it had been turned into luxury condos. And, you know, I learned then that it, there were about a dozen women who'd lived there for years who right. were moved into rent-controlled apartments on the fourth floor. I was just curious what their thoughts were, what they thought, and, and just how what, what, went, what happened to them really resonated with how the city and the building had changed over time. And I just thought it would be a really interesting piece. Um, but the women at that time were very private and they wouldn't be interviewed. 
And I just couldn't shake the story idea. And I thought, well, if I made it into a book, I could do all the research and make things up and have characters. And suddenly was off and running on in that direction. But but for me, the the key was coming from a journalism background so that before mm-hmm. I did anything, I really interviewed women who'd lived at the Barbizon and I read books yes. from a time period and really tried to educate myself as if I was writing an article um, so okay. that I had something to a jumping off point. And mm-hmm. I think that's one of the reasons why the books resonate is that they're mm-hmm. all steeped in historical fact. And then I layer a usually fictional characters and plot on top of that. Then in the author's note, I'm very clear as to what's fact and what's fiction. So you feel right. like you're you're kind of learning and immersed in that time period. And for mm-hmm. me, I think my goal has always been to travel back in time. I would love to see what it was like in the Gilded Age, in the 20s. And, and this is yeah. just my way to, to do that. Is that a favorite? If you could travel back, would that be the era? Yeah, anywhere where there was a lot yeah. of change and just a lot of energy, it would be fascinating to see yes. what it was like to walk around the city then. Especially as a woman. I, there was so much change in America, you know, and getting the right to vote and then, you know, the flapping time and all of it. I agree. That's a gr- That would be a great one to go back to. And how much then of your book? So you sit down to write. I'm sure you've got this great sort of process now ironed out somewhat if that's accurate to say do you do you a lot a certain amount of time for interviewing in all your books and research and how does that all come together it's usually about three months three to four months of research where i'm going out and interviewing people who are experts in whatever field or building or era i'm focused on and doing a lot of reading of biographies and books on the history of of that time period and then just seeing what surprises me because I know the surprises are the key to writing a book that people will pick up and go, oh, yeah, this is about a library. That's interesting. But this right. is about a family who lives in a real apartment that existed in that library. Yeah. That's what makes the book successful because it's like, well, yeah, mm-hmm. I'd like to be that family. I love this. I remember this is something you've done in all your books. There, there are these beautiful little hidden nuggets. The masterpiece, for those readers that haven't read the masterpiece, there was a, a lovely little aha moment that I had in discovering there was an art gallery in the middle of Grand Central Station. It was up top on one of the floors. Yeah, yeah. There was yeah. an art gallery as well as a, an art school called the Grand Central School of Art that was there wow. for 20 years, had 900 students a year, and huh. no one had ever heard of it. It was just fantastic. So this was in the 1920s, 30s. And, and so, yeah, that, that's when I know I'm, I'm in a good place and, and off and running when I find yeah. something that shocks me. Yeah. Okay. So what is the hardest part of that process? I know what it would be for me, but you know, what do you love the most? And then what part is really the tough slugging as a writer? It's almost like a sandwich where beginning and ending are really fun for me. And the parts that I love middle is tough. The research and the interviewing is really interesting because Mm. it's possible anything at that point and you have so many interesting roads to go down and rabbit holes to follow and that's a lot of fun writing the first draft i find so painful because i do plot out the plot and i know who the characters are i I figure all that out beforehand and and lay it down and then mix it so that it's it's an intertwined timeline plot you know with with a few big plot twists on the way 
And writing that first draft where you know what you have to do, but there's just nothing there but a blank page. So hard. And, and you know, I, I write about 1500 words a day and I usually get it done in about four months. And once you've, once I've done that though, then I have something to play with. And then it's fascinating to see how I can sharpen the characters and how can I make the plot mm -hmm. even more twisty or reveal, have a big reveal, just writing scenes like that and editing them um, right. so that they really, they really pop. To yeah. Me, that's the fun part. Oh, nice. And how many rewrites? What's it? I have no idea. How many rewrites would you do? There are about 10 drafts. By the end, are your eyes kind of like, okay, I can't look at this anymore? Yes, a little bit. By, by the time the copy editor has gone through it and the proofreader, after it's gone to the publishing house, that's where it's just exhausting because you've read okay. it so many times. But I try to take breaks in between each draft so my mind is clear. I can approach it with fresh eyes because you just can't see it. There's too much going on. And that's where working with a great agent and a great editor really helps elevate it. And I think as a journalist, I understand the importance of, of an editor and rely on them to, to help me see what I can. Yeah, you're right. There's something in that writing process of being able to step back and, and try to re-envision it. And what was it like to get an, an editor? Was it difficult for you and a, and a publisher to believe in your talent, your skill, your dreams? I, you know, I was really, really, really lucky. What, as I was writing the first draft of the book, I, I was going to panels where there were agents and trying to learn about the industry and how it worked. And I heard an agent speak on a panel who talked about how she was looking for strong female characters. So when I felt the manuscript was ready, I sent it to her and mentioned that I'd seen her talk. And I think just that was enough to get me out of the slush pile in, in, in front of her. Um, and so she, she read it and wrote back and said, I love it. I want to represent you. I have a title. <laughs> and, um, and we were off to the races. So then we worked together on it for about a year where I, I just didn't know what I didn't know. I worked with a freelance editor to really get it into, into shape. And then we, she put it out there and um, I spoke to a number of editors who were interested. And the one, Stephanie Kelly at Dutton was the one who who I landed with, and, and we just had a wonderful conversation where I knew she understood the strengths and, mm -hmm. and the weaknesses of the book, and I knew she'd help me shape it further, which she did, and we've been together ever since. I couldn't imagine doing a book without her. Amazing. So the relationship part of this is huge. So community of other writers, but really getting in there, it, you know, it sounds like a very authentic process, too. I mean, it wasn't like you were out pitching to a, a wide range of you really took your time to set a good foundation and learn about the industry and then find people that believed in and would be good for you and helping shape you. Yeah, and, and the team at Dutton is all women in terms of the publicity departments and the marketing departments and and, and they're just incredible. It's it's a great team. If for launching a book even in, in the times of a pandemic, they were incredible and and wow. It's it's a team effort, no question. Okay, and is that what you would recommend, or you would suggest to other writers, burgeoning writers that are looking to work and you know get their work out there, that they do that kind of homework? Are there sites? Is there anything else you could suggest? Yeah, you know, I think it's read it. if there's a book that you read that you really love that is similar to the book you're writing, look and see who they thank at the back. They usually thank their agents, so add that to your list of possible agents. And, and the key really is to get your book in the best shape it can be in terms of showing it to other people so that you've 
you've had other eyes on it and you've revised it as much as you can. And then it's, it honestly, it's just luck. It's, it's the right book at the right time. Yes. I would think there's timing to that. And you seem to be a master at this now. I'm just going to say Fiona, because you have timed when I take a look at the list of books that you've done, you have a really wonderful approach that combines a love of many things that you personally have that makes your writing shine. You can tell that it hits, that's, that you care, that you're not just throwing out a variety of different topics. So I'd love to jump into that, if that's okay. These are the things that many writers or readers of your work have come to love. And the first one is the historic buildings in New York. It's only New York that you write about. So far, it's only been New York. And there are historical buildings that somehow there's something in there where you found, do you go looking? What happens first? Is it a combination? Do you know, hey, I really want to write about that building? Or I think I'm going to spread myself around and do a Upper East. I'm going to do something in the village. How does it happen? No, usually the building hits first. Um, Like with the Dakota, it was just me walking by and thinking, oh, that would be a great building. And and basically thinking, oh, I want to go snoop in there. Um, So this might be a way that I could get inside. And yeah, with each one, it's, it's, I'm looking for something that's been around a a long time so that if I do have two timelines, we can see how the building has changed. Um, You know, so, so like how the the library, how it changed from the 1910s to the 1990s, or the Chelsea Hotel, you know, how it was this hotbed yes. of artists and politicians and then became a hotbed of rock stars. And what happens to the people who've lived there a long time? And yeah, I just love old buildings. I, I yeah. you know, walking around Europe and seeing something that's a thousand years old just blows my mind to think mm-hmm. of all the generations of people who've walked in those halls or worked in the building. There's... And, and New York, just there's so many ghosts that are tucked in the skyline there <laughs> that I think I want to meet them all. I love that. And I think that's what you do, of course. You find some of the ghosts of the past and you bring them and reinvent them, reimagine them. Could you ever imagine doing buildings in, you know, London or Paris? Uh, I would love to do London. I think that would be great. Spend yeah. some time there and find a good building. I love the city. I love the, the country. So it would be my first yeah. choice. I could see that too, especially with your English roots. You know, it would be a little bit of another type of coming home. Now let's talk about the two time sequences. I love that you do this. First, it's around women and it's two different eras or two different periods. You know, and it's right from the very get-go when you wrote The Dollhouse. Did that sort of set the stage for you? Yeah, you know, it's a wonderful way to show how women's voices and agency have changed over time and how it, mm-hmm. it hasn't. And, and you know, so to, to think about what it was like to be a woman in the 1910s in New York City when there was all this going on about women's independence and the right to vote, and birth control, and, you know, maybe women should keep their maiden name. Imagine that. Just all of these things. But even, like, down in the village, there was yes. free love. And, and if you were gay, it was perfectly fine to walk around. And it just surprised me how open and, and forward-thinking women were at that point and then of course you get world war one and everything becomes suddenly very traditional again but the city and and the the country has had these moments of of huge forward movement and then everything kind of comes to a halt as we go back and retrench Mm -hmm. and so it's fun to compare that and so for lions for example i created two characters who are really out of step with their time so laura in the 1910s 
is the wife of the superintendent and she's very ahead of her time. She wants mm -hmm. financial independence. She wants more than being a wife and mom. She wants a career. And then you have the character Sadie in the 1990s, who's a curator at the library, who kind of lives <laughs> in the past, <clears throat> excuse me, where she deals with rare books. She wears vintage clothes. Her advice manual is from the 1800s. And so by doing that, you create women who already have conflict. And that's what drives the story forward is who are they and, and how do they find happiness? That's something I've seen that the women of the past are wanting to move forward quickly. And the ones that are living in today's time are reflecting back and there's a little bit of an angst or a desire to embrace some of those things in the past. Do you think that's true today for women? You know, all of the women I know are are happy to move from the past. Things like the Me Too movement and just shaking things up. And, and, you know, when I think about when I came to New York in the 90s and what we accepted, the behavior towards us that we accepted, that today There's... would never be <laughs> happy at this, you know, the younger generation, as it were, are, are standing up and saying, you know, that's mm -hmm. not going to work. So yeah. I, I think I think we're, we're in a really struggling time right now with, with both those forces. Um, but, but most of the women I know, you know, want want everything they want careers they want kids yeah. um and they want support yeah so maybe that's the unifying thing that women do want everything and why shouldn't they pursue what it is that they want for you in particular, I mean, you show, you've set this lovely example of going out and searching and being open and then just knowing enough to, well, it's time to shift and going ahead to do it. Are, in some respects, some of these women then maybe a little reflection of what you want for women or how you feel about your personal? Does that get in there? Yeah, I think, I think definitely in terms of wanting to know what else is out there, you know, but understanding there are limitations in certain times of your life when you do have to take care of family or, you know, put your focus there. And then there are times that you can take your eye off that and, and try something new. I've talked to hundreds of women and I think we all tend to struggle with the same things and looking for balance and wanting more and having a bit of a dual personality where Sometimes it's great to think that you don't have to push too hard and other times that you want to push harder and it's not enough. I feel like you really are helping women to consider, you know, what are their circumstances? What is it that we want? So when you, you create these characters, are there certain themes that you find you're really picking up that inevitably, even if you're not purposefully doing it at the beginning, it comes back? Are there themes like this that go through all of the books you've written? Yeah, I definitely think so. I think each one has some character who feels muted in some way and okay. does not have a voice. Yes. And in the course of it, finds it, even okay. if it's sometimes at the, ex the expense of what she loved. Um, and, okay. and, you know, that each character has to sacrifice something yes. in order to get what she wants. And sometimes it's a, a huge sacrifice and sometimes okay. it's not so much. I don't mm -hmm. want everything to have a happy ending. And I think that's about as we grow older, that we have mm -hmm. to make choices and mm -hmm. live with the choices that we've made. And, and so I think I make every character go through that. Yeah, you definitely do. I see family ties always in these characters and having to make choices, parenting, relationships. Am I destined to be a, a spinster? And also, and also, you know, how, how families keep secrets. 
So that affects later generations. I guess this isn't the time to ask you if you have big family secrets that you've discovered. No, I'm afraid not. But you know what it is? I think, you know, it's so interesting you say that because I hadn't thought of this before, but my family's the only family that came to America. All aunts and uncles and cousins and, you know, in the past, grandmothers and grandmothers who lived in England, who I would see every three years and know that that was an important part of my parents' life, but not have any real connection to it because it's only every three years and you're just a kid. So I think part of it is that of feeling like, wow, there's this whole other country where everything makes sense and wanting to, wanting to find out why and how do I, what, what does that mean for me? I could see this being, you know, one of those books, maybe the foray into London, sort of a sort of Henry James, you know, going traveling across from America there and exploring that. But but I do love that tension. And there are definitely parts in here as a woman reading the book that I loved. And I had never heard of this club, this new club. What is that all about? What what was this? Yeah, so I was reading a book about 1910's Greenwich Village and it mentioned the Heterodoxy Club. And I found a book then that was just about the Heterodoxy Club that talked all about its history. And it was this real club. And Heterodoxy is the opposite of Orthodoxy. So it, what uh. it, it stands for deviating from society's norms. And it was this club that women met every two Saturdays in a, above a restaurant <laughs> in Greenwich Village on McDougal Street. And wow. they would debate the issues of the day. And it attracted icons like Agnes DeMille and Charlotte Perkins Gilman. And it was a place where women could really speak their mind in a safe location. Wow. So nothing was supposed to be taken outside of the club. And they could really talk about what it meant when, when so much was coming down with women's yes. suffrage, women's You're right. rights. It was such a dynamic time. And it was around for about 30 years. And, and okay. just no one, again, it was a surprise. No one had heard of it. No. And so it was fun to bring that to life. And it, it had such an interesting history. And so many famous women were part of it. Wow, that is a real gem. Oh, I would love to see the resurgence of that. Seriously, there's something about that like a woman's salon for writers. I mean, so many cities Paris had theirs, and many Americans went across, of course, to be part of of this kind of very free speech and, and exercise. Yeah, I was fascinated by that. I thought that was really interesting. We still haven't done this yet, and I feel like we should give a little teaser to our readers. What's what's the central plot in this? Yeah, now, so, so it's two time periods. In 1913, it's from the <laughs> point of view of the wife of the library superintendent, and she lives with her husband and two kids in an apartment okay. at the library that actually existed. And she's surrounded by all this knowledge, but she wants something else out of life. And so she applies to Columbia Journalism School and gets in. And her world is really just blown wide open. And then in 1993, it's from the point of view of a woman named Sadie. And she's a curator of rare books at the library. And she's about to put on this big exhibit when one of her books goes missing. And she's drawn into a series of book thefts that happened 80 years ago as well as a terrible tragedy that happened to the superintendent's family back then. And I like to say it's about the power of women's voices and the magic of the written word. Oh, beautiful. Okay. I'm not going to say anything further from there because I I do think that that's so poignant for today. And so if we move out a little bit, what's on your nightstand? Who else do you read? What, What fuels your inspiration? Yeah, I said, you know, I tend to read a mixture of historical fiction and mystery. Um, and so, you know, recently I've read um, The Exiles by Christina Baker Klein, which is a book about Australian women convicts mm-hmm. in the 1800s. 
Really, really good book. Um, there's a book coming out called The Rose Code by Kate Quinn, which is, takes place at Bletchley Park um, in England, and it's about three women code breakers, and it's just fantastic. Fine. It's a, she's such a good writer, and it's okay. a wonderful book. Um, yeah, and then okay. recently I read this amazing book, um, which has been around a long time. It's called Passing by Nella Larson. And it was written in 1929 about two women in Harlem who are friends um, who both can pass as, as white, even though they're black. Uh, and it's about friendship and, and racism. Racism. And just reading a book that was written in the 1920s about the 1920s, there's something about it that, that brings you right right in there. You know, there's no filter of, of someone in modern times looking back hazily. You're right there. It's a powerful, powerful book. So a lot of historical fiction, whether, or fiction or, or writing that's right from the period as well, not even looking back. And do you juggle one book at a time or are you always reading? Are you a multitasker when you read? I tend to do one book at a time. So yeah, I, I couldn't okay. do, it would be hard to switch around. I like to just get embedded in the story. Okay, and we know about your writing project. Anything just as we wrap up, because I know we've been speaking here for a little bit of time, words of wisdom from Fiona Davis in terms of, you know, looking forward to the future and where we are now in the world and even a note for women in particular. Yeah, I think, you know, for for everyone, I think it's it's never too late. It doesn't matter if you haven't accomplished everything you wanted to, to accomplish in your 20s and 30s. I think it's in, in a way better to wait and find success in your 40s, 50s, 60s, because it's sweeter then, and you can also appreciate what you've accomplished then without the the anxiety. And I just feel like it's just, I didn't start writing until I was in my late 40s. And and so, you know, you you just never know where inspiration will hit. Mm. And in terms of getting through these times, it does feel like it's been a long, long, many years. But... You know, I, I feel like the, the country is resilient and, and mm-hmm. we're resilient. And I think if people keep on sticking with the truth, we can't go wrong. I couldn't agree more. And I think coming from a New Yorker, New Yorkers are just, they have the strongest backbones and they have gone through so much. I'm excited to see New York bounce back and the country to bounce back too. Yeah. Thank you for spending time today, Fiona. Thank you, Rose. This is wonderful. I love chatting with you. Oh, thank you. Me as well. And I look forward to your next book. I cannot wait. And we'll have all kinds of details to share with our listeners about all the books, the series of five books, and a little bio for you. So thank you again, Fiona. I really appreciate you spending time today in the lounge. My pleasure. Okay. Cheers. Take care. In the very end, we all have our own stories to tell. We wish here only for you to be as happy as you can in life. We want you to know that you are loved, that you are important, that your story matters. It really, really matters. We hope that you will sip on every single momentous occasion, the challenges and the opportunities in life. Look forward to seeing you again next episode. Take care, everyone. And that's a wrap. Sipping on a story. Thank you.